This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. If you haven't met me, my name is Isaiah. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ the King. So glad to have you with us. And I'm really excited about the text today. We are in the season of Epiphany. This is the last week of Epiphany. As some of you may know, Ash Wednesday is coming quickly upon us. That's this week. And so then we'll be entering into Lent. Um, The season of Epiphany is focused on the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Um, so the, the, the lectionary, which is this really old Bible reading and teaching plan that we follow here as an Anglican church, uh, saved one of the best texts for last. Um, it's yet another story of Revelation for a Mountain. If you've been tracking with the text that we've been going through the last few weeks, you may be um, aware that we've been on the Sermon on the Mount, which is another place of Revelation where Jesus is doing teaching. Um, along with the temptation on the Temple Mount, Uh, these mountains are all points of clarity about just exactly who Jesus is. Um, From the temptation on the Temple Mount, we find that Jesus confronts spiritual evil, defiantly looking it in the face with unflinching boldness because, as he tells his disciples, evil has no hold on him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes that his life, this life, lived free from the power of evil in all its forms, is available, but it will cost you everything. In fact, um, it's actually everything that you don't really possess or control to begin with, though. Um, These are the very things that come to possess and control us. Things like anger and lust and our unwillingness to forgive our neighbors when they've hurt us. He tells us that the truly blessed life or flourishing life, in stark contrast, is a life lived freely, free enough to forgive those that wrong you free enough to admit it when we are wrong, and free to acknowledge when the state of the world doesn't meet our longings for rest and wholeness, justice and peace, free to hunger and thirst alongside Jesus for the kingdom that he's bringing into our midst even now. And this is not a new thing, God revealing himself on a mountain top. Sinai was famously the place of God's glory being revealed where Moses saw God's face and God let all his goodness pass before him. 
prophets like Elijah had encounters with God on a mountain. In the book of Kings, God reveals himself to Elijah, not in the acts of might and power, earthquake and fire, but in the sound of a low whisper. Even the ancient Garden of Eden was thought to be on a mountaintop where God would walk and converse with his people in the cool of the day. In fact, it's uh, no coincidence that today our text starts with the words, six days later. Six days is not a random segment of time in the world of the Bible. Six days evokes the creation story where God works to reveal beauty and order out of chaos and emptiness. Later on, as we heard in one of the readings today, Moses will start up Mount Sinai with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, where he will spend six days in the cloud of God's presence before hearing on the seventh day, God calling him from within the cloud. Which is why we should not be so surprised that when Peter, James, and John accompanied Jesus up a mountain and then are swept into an immersive, visionary, and auditory experience, who else should be conversing with Jesus there than Moses and Elijah? Clearly, Peter is excited by this development. Here are the heroes of Israel. Together, they represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. Their presence undoubtedly confirms to him and the others that they're on the right track. Never mind that Jesus has been talking, just talking, about some kind of martyr's death. What better confirmation than this, that Jesus is the long-awaited ruler, the anointed ruler, ready to bring his oppressed and subjugated people into their destiny. Just think about that for a moment, just how you would feel as an oppressed and occupied people group. There are places in the world right now that we're watching that happen. You can see it on our TV screens where your very movement is being tracked, where your money that you try to make to provide for yourself and those you love is being taxed heavily, right? This is the kind of world that they were in under the, under the Roman Empire. So it probably felt very hopeful indeed to see Jesus in this kind of mystical way and such continuity with the history of Israel. It probably felt like, despite the rejection that they'd experienced from the religious establishment thus far, they were clearly now heading in the right direction, heading for validation and vindication maybe. And so he proposes, Peter, the only sensible things to do, let's stay here. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, Peter might have literally just finished, get, just finished getting rebuked by Jesus for denying that the cross was necessary for his kingdom to come. Um, but now things are finally making sense. But as soon as he opens his mouth, suggesting that he and his buddies camp out with these three equally notable prophets, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, things begin to shift. Before he can even finish the suggestion or fully soak in this divine confirmation, he is dramatically interrupted by two things in succession to one another, a cloud and a voice. First a cloud and then a voice. The bright cloud, as it's called, overshadows them. Then from within the cloud, a voice. And the voice says this, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There's only one other time in Matthew's gospel where we have heard words like this, and they came at the beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist, there Matthew tells us that just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw God's spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. This is the text, by the way, that we started off Epiphany with. 
it's strongly implied here that God only speaks two times in the Gospels, and it's at the Jordan and here on the mountain. In the first instance, God's Spirit descends like a dove, hovering like the Spirit over the waters at creation. Here, His presence covers the mountain like at Sinai. Peter, James, and John find themselves on the, on the ground, their faces in the text overcome by fear. On their faces overcome by fear. He comes over and touches them, speaks to them, and then when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Elijah and Moses disappear and they're left with their rabbi, their friend, the one they thought they knew. They could maybe even get on board with him being like-kind with Moses and Elijah, a prophet and a divine teacher. Think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Think of the kind of miracles he was doing, Elijah and Elisha being miracle-working prophets themselves. That was surprising, but it made a certain kind of sense of Jesus, gave him some context. What they could not have been prepared for was Jesus as God's Son, his only beloved. Because the voice from the cloud didn't say, listen to them, grouping in Jesus with divinely appointed messengers like Moses and Elijah. The voice didn't even say, listen to me, as if Jesus had just led them into a mystical encounter with the divine like a spiritual guide. No. This was something else entirely. To have all this history, all this divine symbolism and story manifest before your very eyes, that must have felt like revelation. That must have felt like an epiphany of its own. But to have all of that history happening around you, the apex of your wildest imaginations for yourself and for your people, and then to have that be utterly eclipsed by something beyond comprehension, by someone far beyond comprehension, it's terrifying, really. Their familiarity, understandably, turning into incomprehension and fear. And then he touches them. He lays his hands on them. And he tells them not to be afraid not to cower in fear. Eventually, they look up, meeting his gaze, and they're alone with him. As they're coming back down the mountain, he tells them not to speak about their experience with him, to, um, in a direct quote, until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. If you've uh, read the preceding story to the Transfiguration, as, uh, as this is also referred to here, this is the Transfiguration story, In Matthew 16, the chapter before, Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi questioning his disciples about who people say that he is. This is the question, right? They answer, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And this is where Simon Peter gets it right. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. It's after this revelation that Jesus begins to speak more candidly for the first time about what exactly the fullness of his ministry entails. He begins showing his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and raised. And here's where Peter gets it wrong. He takes Jesus aside. After hearing this, he rebukes him and says, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Some of you are familiar with this. You're you're a hindrance to me, for you've been setting your mind on on divine things, but on human things. 
And then Jesus tells his disciples, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life, who want to hold on to it, will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? And then he says, For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So there's some necessary background, backstory, and context. When Jesus is telling Peter, James, and John as they're coming down the mountain, tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead, he's referring back to this, this previous thing he has told them just before their encounter. And uh, he's still heading to the cross. Nothing about what they've seen has changed that. And more than that, if they're to continue to follow him, they too will have to carry a cross. Paradoxically, denying themselves to find their lives with him. The with God life. To find lives of meaning, lives of substance, not self-protected or self-sustained lives, but God-enabled lives through Jesus and his cross. It's the invitation. Hmm. When I was thinking about this text this week, there's a phrase that just kept coming to mind from Luke's gospel. It's a statement that is made by some people after Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. And the first thing they say is they say, uh, there's a prophet, a great prophet has risen among us. This is Luke 7, if you want to look it up later. But the second thing they say is, um, and then they're filled with under, uh, wonder and awe as we would be. And uh, the second thing they say is, I think, maybe more notable, and it just rings in my imagination. I couldn't get out of my head. They say, God has come to help his people. God has come to help his people. That's a pretty good uh, summary of the ministry and person of Jesus. That is to say, in the person of Jesus, God is drawn near. Jesus is both the divine one, the only beloved son revealed and exalted by God the Father in a mountain, and simultaneously the human one in solidarity with us, carrying our burdens, touching us and telling us not to be afraid. His insistence on the cross is God's insistence on the cross, not at a vengeful distance, but between two criminals in the person of Jesus. The Apostle Paul will later write about the cross that there, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. God has come to help his people. Not in the abstract or at a distance, but here and now. Why does the transfiguration matter so much? Because Jesus is God's revelation to us. He is what God has to say to us. God's definitive word to humanity there is no other revelation to come. He's not one of many revelations. He's not just a teacher, though he's a good one, or a prophet, though he's definitely that, or a messenger. He is, in the language of Matthew's gospel, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the only beloved son revealed in glory on the mountain and heading for the cross in our stead. God has come to help his people. What does this view of God do to our thinking, to our living? How do we imagine God? Do we imagine God at a distance? 
do we imagine that he has these expectations, that he has this program, that he's imposing his will on the world? How do we imagine God? Do we imagine God like the cross? Do we imagine God in the face of Jesus, in the vulnerability, in his humanity with us? What does this view of God do to our thinking? Or for that matter, to our living? What does seeing Jesus on the mountain with Peter and James and John do to us? In our epistle reading today, Peter is writing like years later to the fledgling Jesus communities, still under persecution, still in the Roman Empire, eking out on the margins. He tells them, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses to his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven while we were with him on the mountain. What is true about this event is that Jesus is exactly who he has always been. Um, he didn't really change at all, right? But those who thought they knew him were indelibly changed. As one of the church fathers writes, what happened on the mountain did not manifest a change in him, speaking of Jesus, but a change in those who saw him. That's epiphany. That's revelation. And it's both. It can never be just majesty. That's why we have this story. And I love, I love that he comes and touches them. I love that there's an eye-level comfort, drawing near, empowerment, encouragement, that he looks them in the face because we need to know. We need to know that Jesus is the divine one sent from the Father, the full revelation of what God is really like in the world, that God has not abandoned us and all his power and glory, and we need to know that he draws near in human flesh. And that's what we see in Jesus. That's who he is. Ask Wednesday is this week. As we move from Epiphany to Lent, we enter the seasons, uh, same as the disciples walking down the mountain. He's made it clear that the cross is the only way forward. Um, his cross and ours. We have now seen him for tr- who he truly is, albeit maybe just for a moment. But we now know that he's the only way to find our lives. Any grasping for significance or feigned spirituality outside of him and his cross is a dead end. Any hope outside the power of his resurrection and the pouring out of his spirit into our hearts will ultimately let us down. As we come to face to face with our mortality on Ash Wednesday and as we continue into Lent, will this be a time of honesty for us before God? Can we be honest enough to say where we actually are to tell God that? And the words God speaks on the mountain are also of critical importance here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Lent is a time of acknowledging the aches in ourselves and in this fractured world, but it is also a time for listening. Lent is for listening. Listening to the words of Jesus in the Gospels and in prayer. Epiphany or revelation as a way of putting us on our faces, of making us aware of our finitude. We stand in front of a God we can't comprehend, and it's humbling sometimes, sobering. But it's right in the midst of that sobering awareness 
of our finitude that he reaches out to us and touches us, lifts our gaze to his. Jesus is eye-level comfort and encouragement. In Jesus, God is with us, and God has come to help his people. We must listen to him as the voice from the cloud says. And again, I think this is, this is not in the abstract. This is something that is flesh and blood. This is real life. Um, sometimes when we go, and we're, we're doing Sabbath keeping in our community groups. Some of you may know that. If you're part of a group, you probably are aware of that. Um, and so, you know, here we have the season, the church calendar, bringing us into Lent, into the wilderness, into the desert, and also into a uh, in our community groups into this space of um, one form of fasting. It's also a form of feasting, but it's a, it's a form of saying no, of living inside the limits. It's a uh, space of uh, inviting God into our lives and making space for him. And uh, sometimes in those kinds of seasons or in those kinds of practices, um, the temptation can be, um, depending on our view of God, that we are... Um, we're still looking to please an, an angry, an angry God, or that's never quite—it's never quite good enough, or that we're just still trying to uh, check the boxes, or maybe that God's done something in the abstract, but really in our day-to-day, it's just kind of all depends on us. And um, my invitation to you for for Lent and for Sabbath keeping, if you're in a community group, those are going on simultaneously, is that you use and that you engage this season as a time to reject and to work through whatever shame, condemnation, or feeling that it all depends on you, and that you enter into the joy that God has, the invitation into his life to participate with him and to be where, um, where we really are because that's where he really is. Um, I, d- I don't know. I don't know all your uh, spiritual experiences and where you're at with, with God, so I don't pretend to know that, but I, but I do know for myself that um, sometimes when I'm looking for God, I find that um, God is actually where I really am, not where I think I should be, um, not where I think he wants me to be, but where I actually am, and sometimes we feel the absence, sometimes we feel like Where is the closeness? Where is that? And it's actually in this kind of moment, maybe we're terrified, maybe we're aware of our own mortality, maybe we're on our faces. That's where he meets us. Um, See, he can't meet you in some kind of like puffed up version of yourself. He can't meet you when we're like doing spiritual virtue signaling for one another. He can't meet you. Like God is so gracious and he does all kinds of things in our lives, but ultimately the communion that we long for, the fellowship that we long for, is simply just not available uh, to us if we're not actually um, engaging with where we really are in our heart. So the first invitation of Lent and, and, and Sabbath keeping would be to just be present, to be present with ourselves and therefore present to God with us where we actually are, not where we think we should be. Um, a second thing is you may notice Jesus brings his disciples to the mountain. Uh, his way uh, is and always has been a communal way. It's not self-made uh, or self-sustained. His teachings are virtually impossible to live out in isolation, um, especially for the long term. His spirit bonds us to him and thereby to his body, the community of Jesus. 
just as the disciples were called to walk with him in community, we too are to follow him in community. Uh, Sunday morning church by itself is a pale reflection of the community that he lived and died for. I think we probably kind of all know that, almost goes without saying. Uh, the communal life of the Spirit can take on a multitude of forms, but it will always involve intentionality and vulnerability, actual, real, like, relationships. And hear me, I, I know there's, um, there are people in this room that are coming out of really hard situations and r- painful relationships, and maybe especially church. Um, and I just, just have nothing but, but empathy um, for that. I also know that ultimately God is calling us to himself and he calls us to himself through a community. And that often the ways that we're wounded is actually the ways that he wants to heal us. It's in relationship. It's with his people. And so, um, you know, don't, don't miss out on that. Um, don't, uh, don't ignore where God might be wanting to heal you or to touch you. It's in community. Many of you might be new to this community or still trying to figure it out. Welcome. We're glad to have you here. This is not a place for spiritual performance. Rather, we are choosing to try to figure out how to walk with Jesus and follow him together. We are choosing to take our feelings of inadequacy and shame and the reverse, the, the pride and the other things that we use to try to cover those feelings of inadequacy and shame. We're taking those things. We're choosing to take those feelings and those experiences to God through Jesus and his cross to let him touch us and to hear his voice of comfort and encouragement. I feel so grateful to be with you. I feel grateful to be one of you. This is a, this is a season where God is inviting us into his rest, into his comfort, into his companionship. And yeah, it's a season of stripping down, but Really, it's a, a stripping away of stuff that, honestly, was is so fleeting anyways. Um, and there's a joy there. So don't make the mistake, this is just a freebie, but just don't make the mistake of like that the Lent is ha- has to be this like, it's not a dirge, it's not here. If you need to be grieving, grieve, because that is, there are things to grieve in the world, there are things to grieve in our lives. So just hear that. It's, there's nothing unspiritual about that, far from it. Um, but it's also not, we don't need to conjure some kind of like, self-flagellation or I don't you know it's it's actually a space I think of a lot of freedom Um, it's just a place of kind of limit and focus and that's actually a beautiful thing a preparation Um, yeah so follow that invitation we're going to pray together we pray for us first and then we'll, we'll enter into that Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gracious offer of life to us. We thank you for the hope that you extend to us in your gospel. We thank you for the freedom and life that you intend for us. God, I ask for each person in this room that we would not miss out on whatever those invitations look like on a day-to-day basis, on a relationship-to-relationship basis. Lord, help us create this, this space to be able to process with you wherever we're coming from, whether it's, whether it's deep sorrow or a place of joy and peace. God, we thank you that you have come to help your people, that you are a giving God, that you have given us yourself in your Son and in the pouring out of your Spirit, which sheds abroad the love that you have for us in our hearts 
We pray this morning that people would feel your love, that they would feel your love wash over them. And Lord, throughout this week, where there is anxiety, where there is depression, where there is a lack of hope, Lord, would you lift our gaze? Would you touch us? Would you remind us not to be afraid? Come, Lord Jesus. And please join me now for the prayers of the people. We pray that Christ may be seen in the life of the church. You have called us into the family of those who are the children of God. May our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ be strengthened by your grace. Jesus, Lord of the church. You have called us to be a temple where the Holy Spirit can dwell. Give us clean hands and pure hearts so that our lives will reflect your holiness. Jesus, Lord of the church. You have called us to be a light to the world so that those in darkness come to you. May our lives shine as a witness to the saving grace you have given for all. Jesus, Lord of the church. You have called us to be members of your body so that one suffers, all suffer together. We ask for your comfort and healing power to bring hope to those in distress. Jesus, Lord of the church. So either silently aloud, this is a time to lift our prayers to the Lord and create some space for a moment. Lord, we lift up to you the war in Ukraine that continues for your people that are there, for those that are suffering, those that are displaced. God, be with them. Raise up your church. Encourage them. Bring them peace in, in their suffering. And also for those in Turkey and Syria who continue to mourn lives lost and livelihoods and homes destroyed. God, bring comfort. Send your church, mobilize your church in the globe to continue to minister to people, to lift them up in their time of need. God, and for here in our country right now, not just with our political polarization, but for our more, most recent waves of gun violence, even some of that touching our community here this past week. Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy.